Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm very excited to welcome to the show today, Celeste Vaughn. She's a sober coach. She's a recovery coach dealing mostly with mums and women who are struggling with their relationship with alcohol. She's also an author and she has a book coming out in September called It's Not About the Wine, The Loaded Truth Behind Mummy Wine Culture. Celeste, how are you today? Good. How are you doing, Danny? I'm really good, thank you. I think you said it was, what time is it over there? It's the afternoon for us. Yeah, it's the afternoon and it's nice and early in the morning here. Thank you so much for joining me today and I'm really keen to jump into this conversation about your journey with alcohol and how it's got you to where you are today. So can you tell me when you first started drinking? Yeah, I first started drinking in high school. I experimented a little bit here and there, but I didn't think much of it. I had a father who was an alcoholic, so I always kind of knew there was a danger zone when it came to alcohol. 
And I was determined not to follow my father's footsteps. But there was one experience that really will always be kind of a tipping point in my adolescence. When I was in high school, I went to Sweden on an exchange and I went to a party. And that was really the first time I ever got drunk. I blacked out a little bit. I was throwing up. <laughs> it was a really lousy experience. But prior to all that happening, I thought I had found the magic ticket. There was a point or a place in me where all my worries, all my fears, everything I felt like I was not good at or enough of as a girl, as a woman, went away in a couple hours of consuming alcohol. And I thought that maybe my life would forever be changed, that this was the secret to a happy, successful life moving forward. And then, of course, everything went to hell a couple hours later when I got very sick. I was miserable the next day. I swore off alcohol. And I really didn't drink much again until college. But I do think, you know, deep down, that day kind of lit a fuse in me. At the very least, it showed me how I was capable of drinking, and it wasn't in moderation. <laughs> so it was a very telling experience looking back on it. But at the time, I thought it was a, wow, that was a big mistake. Won't do that again. Yeah. How many of us have been there too? Like an over and over again. I love what you said. You thought it was the answer for everything, all your problems until it all went to hell. <laughs> I just think we can all relate to that completely. Okay. And so how did it keep evolving for you? Yeah. So I went to college. I was a big drinker in college, as was pretty much everyone I spent time with. But what most people didn't know is I was also secretly carrying an eating disorder around with me. And that was my first priority uh, over everything, over relationships, over alcohol. That was my central focus. So as I got older and my relationship with eating started to become healthier, that is when my alcohol use started to pick up. And I think I was able to stay in that gray area of drinking, feeling like I really wasn't impacting anybody else but myself. I wasn't hurting anybody else in my mind until I became a mother. And that's when I saw that the way I liked to drink just wasn't sustainable. I couldn't drink the way I was drinking and parent the way I wanted to parent. So that was really when my alcohol use came to a head and I had to have that conversation that we all have to get to at some point, which is, can I keep going down this road? And if I do, where will it take me? And is it worth losing everything in the process? It's such a hard conversation to have, isn't it? Where we get to that place where we're like, where is this going to lead me? What happens if I stay on this path? Just to dial back a little bit, where you said that you had this eating disorder, and once you kind of got that under control, then flicked over to use of alcohol. Talk to me a little bit about that because I've never had an eating disorder. Is it the obsession with something or is it, what is it about the one and then the other? Yeah, they're actually very similar. Now that I have been doing research on it, it's very common for someone with bulimia to at some point in their life struggle with alcohol use disorder. And the parallels is when it comes to bulimia, you are binging and purging. That is 
the rhythm. That's the routine. So when I quit my binging and purging routine and felt like I was in a place where I was healed, I was essentially transitioning this addiction or this obsession to alcohol because my alcohol use just ramped right up. It just went right along with the process, even as I felt like I was getting better in other aspects of my life. And there in my alcohol use, I was binging. I wasn't necessarily purging, but it was kind of half of the process. Can I ask if this is okay to ask you this? What did the the binging and the purging give you? A binge has a lot of components to it, but it's the aspect of secrecy. It was my little secret to hide. It felt like almost like a superpower because I felt like I could eat as much as I wanted to and still be skinny. So I felt like I was getting the best of both worlds in this culture that throws food at us every which way, but it expects so many of us to feel like we need to be thin and beautiful at any given time. And I felt like I was winning on both sides of it. But from a chemical standpoint, it was a bit of a a dopamine rush to partake in the binge. And it was a little bit of a high to do the purge part of it. So yeah, there was a kind of a chemical side to it as well. Wow, that's fascinating. And then to ask the same question, what was the alcohol giving you then once you'd got rid of the binging and purging with the food? What was the alcohol giving you? I think if you were to ask me at the time, I would say, well, it's just fun. It keeps me from being bored. It's a great way to talk to other people and socialize. At the root of it, though, (laughs) if I were to be talking to my therapist about it, I feel like there's a hungry girl deep down in all of this who's craving uh, love, who's craving validation, who wants to fit in. I mean, all these things. And I was finding it or seeking it out through food and later alcohol. Oh my God. And it was burst into tears and, and covered in goosebumps. It's so true. Like getting to the core of what's actually driving the drinking and that doesn't necessarily come to us straight away. It can come after a lot of work on ourselves, but oh, it was a hungry girl that was just craving love and Yeah, validation. That's super powerful. So what's it like to acknowledge that? But then also, how do you live with that? And how do you comfort that part of yourself that Mm -hmm. wants that? It's taken me so long to get here, right? I feel like if I knew these answers 20 years ago, I wouldn't be in the pickle I put myself in. But my sobriety has been such a gift to me because it has helped me learn and raise that little girl in a way that she never felt like she was cared for or loved, in a way where she's starting to learn what it means to feel nourished. She's learning to ask for what she needs. She's learning to say no when she doesn't want to. So many things that I spent years running from or pushing aside. I think when I first was sober, the concept of listening to my feelings was just so scary. I didn't know who was even who I even was when it all came down to it. All I knew was who I was when I was hiding behind a a binge and purge or when I was hiding behind the alcohol. And to really use these sober years to reintroduce myself to my inner child, for lack of a better way to say it, has been so beautiful and almost tragic a little that it took so long for me to try to see her. Uh, but I'm so grateful that we can have this relationship now. 
absolutely. I just find it the same like here that once I kind of established the relationship with my little inner person who I'd sort of grown up thinking was a bit yuck and shouldn't be here kind of thing, but to have a beautiful relationship with her now and let her know all the time, like I'm the adult now and and you can relax, you can just be a little person and have fun and do what you want to do. You don't have to work so hard to protect the whole and gee, it's been beautiful work. It's it's beautiful and, and slow. It's a slow journey. It's a beautiful process. So, okay, that's absolutely beautiful. How long did it take you to get there? You said that 10 years ago, that would have been great. How long into your journey of in your own recovery did you start to do that kind of deeper work and the inner child work? I'd say probably two years into my sobriety, did I really start digging deeper, getting to more of the roots and the crux of it. And I think my first two years, I was so focused on establishing a new routine that was really my center of focus. But once I felt really secure and confident in where I was and where I was going, that's when I was able to really kind of peel back the layers and try to get to the why of what brought me here and the how. How do I do this in a better way? Yeah, I so agree. Like, perhaps I want, oh, I wonder too, but I'm the same. Like, so probably about two years after then I really started to dig like super deep. But before that, it was just sort of like, it was a bit novel and it was a challenge and it was all like forward moving, forward moving. And then it sort of changed direction and kind of went a bit more backward movement, I guess. Now it's probably a bit of both, but it does take that time, I think, to establish ourselves in our sobriety. And then when we feel ready and safe, then we can start to do that, the deeper work on ourselves. And and men and women, we all need to do this work on ourselves. And I think you do it when you're ready, when it's more available to you. I wonder if early on in sobriety, had I gone on that journey, I wonder how that would have gone for me. I don't know. What about you? I think it it's one of those things that you can't do till you're ready. I think if you kind of force it upon yourself, like even talking to you now, I remember in the early days when I'd have journal prompts that said, to try to understand your why. Why did you drink? And I used to roll my eyes at that because it made me so annoyed because I was still in that place where I was like, well, that's a dumb question. Everyone knows why we drink. It's because it's fun, because it's social, because it's everywhere. It wasn't until I was ready, ready to do the the deeper work that I was able to go, ah, I see what you're asking me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's beautiful. So, okay, we've we jumped forward a bit here. So to go back to right before you decided enough's enough, yeah. what did that look like for you? How was that? Yeah, so when we kind of reached that Hail Mary point, I had a one-year-old and a three-year-old, and I had gotten through both pregnancies fine, no alcohol, but both times returning to real life, now with a baby, going back to work, and then both times I ran up against postpartum depression and anxiety, and then trying to reestablish what my new alcohol routine was going to look like. I just failed every time. Like I, I tried to find the moderation path and I could do it, but I wasn't satisfied. And then when I couldn't do it, I had fun until I didn't. And then I'm the one at midnight bawling and crying in the bathroom. I've got my husband who's got to take care of the baby now. And I wake up in the morning with these horrible hangovers, completely incapable of now taking care of a child the next day. These things that just were so unsustainable with a heavy drinking routine that I had established for myself over the years. And I realized pretty quickly 
two times with my first child and my second that this isn't sustainable. This is not going to work long term. And I would have to make a change. It all kind of came to a head with several things that were going on in my life besides the heavy drinking, which was my three-year-old was starting to show some behavioral concerns that was starting to point to something neurological. And at the same time, my husband was starting to deal with depression. And those two combined, and me using alcohol to cope at that point, I got to this place where one Monday morning on a cold December, after a long weekend of holiday parties and regular drinking, I had this panic attack uh, when I was at my office, just sitting in front of my computer, not doing anything special. And it was during that panic attack. And even like the hour or two after, I had this kind of moment of reflection where I was like, okay, it was a close call, but what if next time it's not? How many of these am I willing to put up with before I get the message? that something needs to change, that I am following my father's footsteps much further than I ever, ever wanted to go near. And that life my father has led could be mine if I keep going the direction I'm going. So I decided to quit that day. Uh, I only told two people. I told my mom and my husband, and I kept it really hush-hush. I was really ashamed. I was embarrassed and ashamed, and I felt like this is something that has to be my secret because I lost my, I, I like to say, I lost my seat at the adulting table, and I'm stuck at the kids' table for the rest of my life. And so you felt ashamed of the decision or ashamed of where you'd sort of ended up with it? I felt ashamed of the fact that I could not moderate my drinking, and the only option left now was to abstain. Yeah, I think so many people feel that shame. They feel like there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Why can't I drink normally? I remember feeling like that so much. Like, why? Why can't I just drink like a normal person? And it's just, it just wasn't available for me for whatever reason. So, wow. So you told your mum and you told your husband. And was that the last time you drank? Yes. I really white-knuckled it in the beginning. I was really focused on just getting through days, just stacking up a day count. And like I said before, getting into a routine. But at the same time, I did not want to go to meetings. I didn't know how I wanted to do this process. I didn't even know if I was supposed to be in recovery because I didn't consider myself an alcoholic. How much were you drinking when you got to this point? Was it just binging? Well, not just binging, but was it binging or daily? I was drinking about a bottle of wine a night at that point. And I wouldn't drink every night, but most nights, yeah. Okay. So you weren't sure if you were kind of uh, eligible? Yeah, I didn't. Perhaps, yeah, right. I didn't know what that would look like. I I saw my my father do the the 12-step program. He attended meetings and whatnot, but... The entire time he continued drinking and he still, I mean, he struggled his whole life. So it felt like continuing with this path that I I wanted to avoid doing it the way my dad did it. I knew I didn't want to go that route, but I didn't know what, if any, there was options available to me if that wasn't the route I was going to take. So I kind of figured this was going to be 
just my thing. And I would just figure it out as I went along. And that's how it started. Although, like I would say, looking back, I would not have done it again the same way if I had to do it all over. But at the time, I didn't know any better. So I just kind of winged it. So what did you do? You just like, was it just simply white knuckling? Did you have any daily practice? Like, how did you go about it? And how did you tackle those cravings when they first came up without the support of other people? Yeah, I mean, in the early days, it was about accountability. You know, my mom and my husband knew that I wasn't going to drink anymore. And I focused on distractions and putting new habits into practice, like exercise. I started to really increase my running exercise practice. I tried to just get out of the house more and do more things. I did read some quit lit books to get me started too, uh, which really helped and made me feel like I was seen at a different level in a way that most people couldn't understand. I also met with a couple people who were also in recovery at that time and, and connected with them to kind of learn what worked for them and what advice they had. But yeah, it was really uh, spontaneous and unstructured. It's amazing that you managed to like stay on the path. But I think what's important here of people listening is having some accountability and having some connection and someone to base yourself off talking to those other people that were in recovery, yeah. just linking on to someone and, okay, well, how did you do it? And that's why this podcast, I think, is helpful for people just hearing other people's stories and how they did it really, really helps. And it gives you an idea, a model of what to go for. So that's so fantastic. And tell me how you handled, like, how did you handle some of those bigger cravings or when you had that urge, it's just like got you by the balls a bit. How did you handle that? When that would happen, I would talk to friends. I would cry. I would scream. I did a lot of therapy during this time, which was so critical, especially because at that point in my recovery, I didn't have a community. So to be able to talk to someone openly about how this really felt, aside from my mom and my husband, who wouldn't have understood even if I tried, uh, that was really critical uh, in the early days. And again, like reading Quitlet and reading so many people sharing my same experiences in a book and who came out of it successfully was very therapeutic for me as well. So I found that really helpful. Can you remember what books you read? Yes. Uh, the first two books I read were The Sober Diaries and uh, the Catherine Gray's book, uh, The Unexpected Joy of Being Good. Sober. Those are the two. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, The Unexpected Joy of Sobriety or Joy of Being Sober. Okay, that's great. I'll put links for those in the yeah. show notes as well as, as well as your book as well. So when did it shift for you? When did it start to kind of lighten and not be so heavy? Yeah. So I was almost one year sober when I was in a women's writers group and they were posting things to share about, like uh, use this thread to share a big win, something you're excited about. And a writer friend of mine who I just simply adored, she posted, I am six weeks sober and I'm so proud. And I was 11 months sober at that time. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, we're allowed to be happy about this. You know, we're allowed <laughs> to be proud of this. It was so simple and yet such a dynamic mental shift to look at it in that way instead of this shame fest that I had been sitting with for so long. That was really the start where I, I started thinking to myself, this is actually pretty cool. 
this is something that I am allowed to be excited about, proud of, joyful around. And about a month later, when I hit my one-year sober anniversary, I wrote my first post saying, hey, you probably didn't know this, but I had a drinking problem and I'm one year sober today. And it was very well received. Everyone was very excited for me. And in fact, people even reached out to me that I knew in real life saying I have a drinking problem or I'm in recovery. It was a really enlightening moment. And I think for me, that was really the start of the next phase of my sober journey where I started finding the joy. And I stopped looking at myself as a victim. And I started feeling like sobriety is liberation. And all the beautiful parts about sobriety, it just took me a year to get there. Wow. I'm like getting all teared up because for one, I'm just, I don't even know you, but I feel really proud of you (laughs) for doing that. But also I know that feeling of feeling like, oh, there's something wrong with me and feeling that shame. But then how liberating it feels to just go out and just tell people. And most people, it's it's usually always received so well. And, and then it also gives other people an opportunity to go, oh, hey, I'm struggling too. And it makes such a difference. And I love this thought of finding the joy in our sobriety, that it doesn't have to be this big, serious, earnest. I mean, there's time for that as well. But to find the joy in our soberness and, and that feeling of pride and feeling proud about our choices. Yeah, that sense of empowerment. So what would you say, because I know that a lot of people would feel this way too, that sense of shame around their drinking. What's your advice to someone who feels that, or if they are stuck in that shame fest, like you said? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a normal place to start, especially in the motherhood sobriety groups I lead and I meet with others in. There's a lot of mom guilt that's surrounding so many of us around how we drank to cope. And I think that it's okay to start from there and and work upward with the understanding that you don't know what you don't know. And now that you know better, you can do better. Frankly, for so many of us, especially in motherhood, we're drinking to cope with motherhood, thinking it's helping. So if we don't know any better, how can we do better? But when you do have that realization that alcohol isn't going to help, it doesn't help, it makes everything worse. That's when we can move forward and progress and learn to find a better way. And for me, and for so many people, the better way is through sobriety. Um, I have found the things I'm looking for and the ways I want to parent and the person I want to be. I have found that through my sobriety and through the work that's come out of that. Mm, Amazing. I've had quite a few women on this podcast now who've talked about that have postnatal depression and to cope with that, they were drinking their way through. And I've had people contact me after they've aired and said, wow, I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. Didn't realize I was using alcohol to cope with these feelings I might've been having. And I felt so much shame about feeling depressed or anxious after giving birth. And yeah, so many women feel like that, but they, again, there's that shame or I should be living this picture-perfect life with my child that I wanted so desperately, but I'm not feeling that. So in your coaching now, and you you work with women and mums in particular who are struggling, what are some of the strategies you would suggest to help them cope without alcohol? 
Yeah. You know, I think it's such a common place for a new mother, especially to reach a place where they are self-medicating with alcohol, because right at that point in our lives, we are more likely to fall for postpartum depression or anxiety. It's also strangely such a common gift we receive when you become a parent. People give you alcohol. And I think about mommy wine culture and this mommy needs wine message so many of us have justified drinking for to cope in those early days. I think about my own early motherhood when my doctor prescribed me with an antidepressant, but I was drinking and probably completely ruling out the positive benefits of that medication and what it could have had because of the alcohol. So I feel like in a lot of ways in new motherhood, drinking to cope is one of the most common things we do and one of the most detrimental, uh, certainly in my own experience. But for mothers that are in that place now, my first recommendation, something that I wish was available to me would be to find a a sober community and to find other mothers who are in the same place as you or newly sober or long-term sober, but to be able to have a space where you can communicate where you are and what you're feeling and have a, a group around you who is cheering you on and supporting you can make a very positive difference on someone's sober journey. Yeah, I saw something recently. It was a post on Instagram about some mothers getting together to talk about being mums, but they were drinking wine, <laughs> which I'm not judging. But I do think, wow, like if we would take that out and be able to have these really honest conversations without the wine and talk about ways in which you can cope that doesn't involve wine, which is really a disconnection from yourself, your feelings and your child, essentially. And I understand Sometimes people need that to get through, but there are other ways. And so what are some of the ways you would suggest other than connection? Because sometimes it's hard to find other people. Like I can imagine some people here listening go, well, how the fuck do I find them? Like, where are they? Where are these mums? So I don't know the answer to that. I know here in Australia, we've got a few online communities. Kappa is one of them and we're sure they're out there perhaps. Yeah. But what about like, say, getting into nature or those sort of coping strategies or getting out for a walk or finding some time for yourself, if that's possible? Do you suggest any things like that as well? Yeah. I mean, I think if you can take that time to have some time for yourself, if you have a partner, one thing I would encourage would be to establish three hours that you can devote to yourself each week. And then you do the same for your partner and you kind of switch off. But knowing that you will have three hours that is completely dedicated to whatever you want to do with no judgment, with no expectations that you need to do something or be available to your children or child. Sometimes it's things as simple as that that can be such a lifeline when it feels like you are giving everything of yourself, all your energy your body, your presence to this new baby. And it feels like you've lost yourself in the process. You feel all this pressure from people around you telling you to be so grateful. What a blessing. Enjoy every moment. And if you're in the place of postpartum depression, you're not feeling any of that. So feelings of imposter syndrome can kind of creep up on you and make you feel like you aren't worthy you don't deserve this. And then you start drinking more because you feel 
like a, you don't deserve to to be in this place and have this child. Mm, absolutely. And also I think to new mothers and mothers in general take on so much and sometimes they're too scared to or feel like I've got to do it all myself or we can even get to a place where we judge our partners and pick the shit out of everything they do. One great piece of advice my best friend gave me when we had our first daughter, Sunny, she said, if Ash comes to help you with a baby and even like, even if he puts the nappy on backwards, don't criticize him. <laughs> Just, so you know, smart. yeah, fix. it was the best advice I think I ever got because she's like, he might not ever do it to your expectation. It's not so natural for him, but he's doing his best and don't criticize him because she was saying with her first husband, she criticized the shit out of him. And then he just didn't want to help anymore because he felt like he was doing everything wrong. So that was great advice. And so I think it's really important as well for for new mums and mums and women in general or people in general to state your needs. Like, okay, this is how you could help me out today just so I can get a half hour window or a shower. (laughs) Yeah. And not be so picky about how they're doing their parenting, perhaps. I think that's a really good way to also give yourself that space because we just end up I'm doing it all. I'm doing it all. You can get into that that martyrdom place as well, and um, I think that can get us into a bit of sticky territory, also. Yeah, when it comes to communication with your partner in those early days of the new baby, it's such a critical time, and it's something that I was totally unprepared for. I had this kind of mindset that the way my parents did it and the way their parents did it would be the way we did it, which is I take care of all things baby. My husband goes back to work and we're one big happy family. And when life ramped right back up after having the baby, that is not that that just wasn't a good way to handle it at all. I needed my husband's support. I needed his time. Uh, so for me to be kind of pushing his offers to help or what can I do aside because I wanted all this control and I wanted to think I could do it all on my own was so Mm self-destructive that looking back, I mean, I deeply regret kind of pushing him away in those early days. I could have done such a better job about finding a way to involve him better. Yeah. I think it would make, it would make a lot of a big difference to a lot of people, a lot of women that are struggling and just taking it all on because it's no wonder then we end up craving something. We're looking for some relief from it all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you cannot get into that, I know it's different with postpartum depression because that's a chemical thing, but I think it all helps. Absolutely. So what got you then to the place where you're like, you're coaching people and, and even to this place where you're, you've written this book? Yeah. So what happened was I'm going along living my, my best sober life and then COVID hit and I was working at the time my my husband was working, COVID hit, all of a sudden kids are sent home from school. It was clear in our family situation that it would make more sense for me to homeschool than my husband. So now I'm homeschooling my child. I just had taken on this brand new job, working full time, doing communications, and I see my newly sober friends on social media and whatnot are starting to relapse. I see all the memes about quarantinis and pandemic punch and how alcohol is going to be what helps us get through this. I start to kind of feel a little bit wary. It's like, mm-hmm. 
am I going to be able to get through this sober? Like, I, I'm not sure. And one of my friends on Instagram, Emily Paulson, kind of put out a call for help saying, I want to do something to support mothers right now. Uh, if you want to join me, let me know. And I said, absolutely, like, sign me up. And she started uh, the Sober Mom Squad, and we started hosting weekly meetings the last week of March. Just every week, anyone who identified as a mom uh, could come to these meetings, and we just shared, and we did readings, and it was it was extremely therapeutic. It was the first time I had ever been to a recovery meeting, were these virtual support meetings. And I have been a part of Sober Mom Squad ever since. You know, I still host these free weekly meetings every Wednesday. Uh, so it was such a game changer for so many moms, but maybe me most, because not only did it help me stay sober, but it showed me the power of support. It showed me the power of community. It helped me find a community of mothers who was also exploring sobriety and mothers that I now consider close friends. Mm -hmm. And it really changed the way I look at what it means to be sober, to be in recovery in the best of ways. And that's really what made me think this is a direction I want to go. I want to help others. I'd like to support more people, especially mothers. And I've been there, done that. Like I, I know, I know how you're feeling and I know there's a better way and a better approach to this. And I want to show you how. Well, that's so fantastic. It's so great to be able to offer help from a lived experience from that place of where you've been and as a mom and someone who's suffered postnatal depression. It's so helpful. And there's it shows people there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So that's amazing. Well done and congratulations on that. And talk to us a bit about your book. It's out in September. Is that right? But people can pre-order it now. And that's called It's Not About the Wine. Tell us a bit about the book. What would someone expect who's going to read this book? Yeah, I mean, this book, what I hope is what a way that we can kind of build a and create a sober movement where people can p feel proud and vocal around their sobriety. And it starts with my story, my motherhood experience, but then it really digs into research and talking to other mothers about why they drink down to the question we talked about before, like what got us here and what is driving this whole concept of mommy needs wine? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized it's not the wine itself that we desperately need as mothers right now. In 2023, we need better support. We need better systemic support. We need better support at home. In the corporate world, the mental load of motherhood is so all-consuming. We need to be having these conversations with our partners we just talked about and how to do it, like how, how to get started. How do we get to a place where we can be settled and comfortable in our motherhood where we don't need to escape? Amazing. I think it comes down to connection. Like 2023, I guess we, we're all kind of so connected on Instagram and social media, but we're actually lacking that actual real connection with people. And then also thinking back to hundreds of years ago, everyone helped raise the child. Yeah. It wasn't just on this mum to look good, to prepare these nutritious meals for everyone that look good on Instagram, <laughs> to do absolutely everything, probably still bring in some income, doing all the things. Like 
everyone was helping out back then and now we live these little insular lives and there's less connection, there's more dopamine hits coming from everywhere, from our social media, from all, all sorts of things and we're just left going, what the fuck? <laughs> and so I think a, a book like this sounds incredible where we can start to really really understand what drives us and also understand the research, but also how we're going to get through this, how we help mothers and how we help ourselves heal and, and reconnect to ourselves and to our community and, and be able to ask for help. Yeah. And get to a place communally where asking for help doesn't create shame or stigma. In fact, it's encouraged. I mean, how have we gotten to this place where Mothers are so afraid to even ask for help that it would convey that they're not good moms. That is some of the stigma we need to destigmatize mm-hmm. uh, because that's not the way motherhood should be. And it doesn't need to be that way either. No, and there's just something so beautiful in honesty and vulnerability, just saying, hey, I'm struggling here. I need help. It doesn't have to be broadcast across your social media. If you've got people in your close quarters that can help, or maybe you do broadcast it across social media, however you want to do it, but just being vulnerable. And I think everyone gets it. <laughs> like if someone does, doesn't get it, that's more of a reflection of where they're at, I, I imagine. But yeah, I think we're all, we're all yearning vulnerability. We're all yearning real connection. And I think that, yeah, I guess being vulnerable, being honest, helps create that too. So well done for you and well done for you for, for what you've done and what you're offering this space. So if anyone wants to reach out to you, Celeste, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, uh, you can find me on social media at the Ultimate Mom Challenge on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok. And then my book, It's Not About the Wine, The Loaded Truth Behind Mommy Wine Culture, comes out in September and it's available anywhere books are sold. Amazing. That's awesome. Celeste Yvonne, thank you so much for your time today. And I'm really looking forward to your book. And I'll put all the links for everything about you in the show notes so people can reach out to you and also order your book. Have a beautiful evening. Thank you, Danny. Thank you. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.